Welcome to Give Me Some Truth. Mitch, it's a big day for you because we finally get to announce something that you've worked so hard to accomplish, and that is that you are a newly minted, certified financial planner. Congratulations, Mitch. Thank you. Thank you. So I wanted to kind of go into the whole process and what it all takes to get a CFP and and what it all means because, you know, there's a lot of different... Uh, things that are industry, a lot of people, a lot of people have a lot of different things out after their name. And this is one of the crown jewels of the financial planning industry. And so, uh, I wanted to spend a little bit of time explaining what you have to go through to obtain your CFP and then contrast it a little bit with some of your other studies as well. So, uh, just taking it down and on a 30,000 foot view, Mitch, what is the CFP and what sort of credential is it? So CFP, if I don't think you even mentioned this, but it's certified financial planner is is what CFP is, and essentially it's it's a multi stage process and curriculum that you have to go through to to obtain the certification or designation, and really what it does is better equip me to handle complex financial planning situations with my clients, and it starts well my personal journey it started probably three plus years ago. Let's see, 2020. Yeah, we'll call it three plus years ago because I started when I was at Merrill Lynch, started studying. And then without getting too much of the weeds, maybe we'll talk about this further in the podcast, but essentially there's six modules you got to pass and then ultimately sit for the CFP board exam. And I, I passed the board exam. So here we are. Yeah, it's kind of the equivalent of, of say the CPA exam, only it's for financial advice. So a lot of people are familiar with, you know, that exam, I think, and, and, uh, you know, all the different modules are different, uh, disciplines inside of the financial planning, uh, process and practice. So, you know, you have, what is there tax? There's probably ethics on there. Yeah. Yeah. I can, you know, better than I go do through that. So yeah. Module, <laughs> can you remember all six? Is it just basically imprinted in your it, head? Let's do it on the fly here. So the first one's basically general financial planning principles. And so that's kind of the easiest one. It's like the intro into, all right, what are we doing as far as financial planning process goes? Then you get into insurance, all sorts of insurance. Life insurance, of course, is something that's pretty important. Disability, income insurance, but even property and casualty insurance and pretty much anything that you could transfer risk to an insurance company, right? That's that's fair game on the insurance portion. Let's see, module three was investments. So investments in portfolios and and looking at, at stocks and bonds and things like that. Four was taxation, so you're right. Yep, four was taxation. That's historically one of the, the tougher modules. And then five, I'm blanking. Six was estate planning. So let's see, what was five? That's a really good question. Is that ethics? Maybe. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> That's, ethics is important. That's yes. great if ethics that was ethics and you already forgot it. <laughs> ethics is definitely part of it. And well, technically I have not I have not attested to the the ethics portion or whatever because I I passed the test, right? And then they take four weeks to tell you that you actually passed the test. And then I have to submit the the attestation of ethics. So, you know, that's that's uh coming up here in the next couple of weeks, but I got the pass. We're here. They're going to send me a formal snail mail letter, letter in the mail telling me I actually passed. And then I got to sign that. Pay a fee, of course. Yes. And, then, and you got to keep I up on CE going forward. I can use the marks, as they say. 
Yeah, you, you, they're very hardcore about that. You have to put like a registered trademark or a TM after it. And yeah. there's certain ways that you have to do it. And it's like all capitalized. And it's it's. And I even wonder if kind if of absurd. But your intro was CFP board approved because they're you know you have to say you're a CFP practitioner. They're very oh, they're very yeah. specific on Sorry the word that. that you use after CFP. Sorry, I'm a non-CFP, so you know, I guess I can say whatever I want. You can say whatever you would like there, Mitch, about uh, that. We'll we'll put an extra disclosure on everything that we say. That you're a uh, certificate, right? Is that what they say? Ooh, is that a word? I think it was something like that. I think it's like certificate. I think you can use that. Yeah, because I, I remember something about CFP certificate. Yeah, because it's something with. Uh, I remember doing it for John because John's a CFP in our office. Um, you know, so. He's one of the other CFPs, as is uh, Stan Farmer, who's uh, one of our new advisors. And uh, actually, Sill is a CFA, um, Chartered Financial Analyst, uh, which is more on the investment side. But the planner uh, one is is more of all-encompassing, like holistic financial planning, where you say, like investments is a module, whereas a CFA, it's more uh, investments is the core. And planning is really not even really involved in that much at all. So it's, it's a little bit different scenario for Syl versus Stan and Mitch and John. Uh, I think importantly also is you can't just go out of college and just become a CFP. There is a, uh, there, there is a work requirement. Mm -hmm. I think it's what, two years, three. So I can speak to that a little bit and they actually take a look at hours and then furthermore, you can't just you can't just have hours at a financial planning firm like Wagner Condon, let's say. You have to actually have some client-facing experience as part of that, right? So I've been working with clients for a number of years now, and there are a handful of of things that the CFP board requires to go through it, right? So it's I mentioned the, the education piece. So those are all the modules. And now that I'm talking out loud here, I think that module that I kind of technically missed, you know, module five, like I said, I think I flip-flopped. I think estate planning is five. Six was the financial plan that I have to review, that I had to submit. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you do the education. You take a test each time. So you have to pass each test before moving forward, and then you have to submit a financial plan. You have to do all that before the board exam. Hopefully I'm not losing people, but all of that covers the first E, and that's education, right? So the education is the, the huge part of it. And then exam, pass that, experience, which Clint is alluding to here is the experience piece, right? Work in the industry for a certain amount of time in a client facing role. And then ethics, ethics is the four. So those are kind of the four E's that, that all goes into this whole thing that I can then say that I'm a CFP practitioner. And then every year, Walker Conan on Mitch's behalf pays some sort of fee to make sure he stays registered. Yep. Uh, and continuing his, ed. Yeah. And continuing ed, all that good stuff. Yep. Although it's a lot of, there's a lot of free resources now in continuing ed. So that's nice. Uh, but you know, one of the important things about, you know, being a CFP is really taking that oath of that fiduciary standard really, and saying that you're going to put your client's best interest in front of everybody else's. And I think it's easier done at our firm than others because we are fee only, uh, which is a pretty large distinction. There's only about, there's some estimation in a kid says article, Michael kid says article, uh, blog post that about 15% of firms, uh, call themselves and actually are fee only, uh, meaning that we only accept revenue from uh, investment advice. We don't accept any commissions. Uh, we don't have another like broker dealer or anything like that attached to us. And, and therefore, it's a little easier for us uh, to be 
fiduciaries all the time. One of the issues with people that are CFPs, and this is what uh, that's been bantered about the industry a lot, is people that work for broker dealers or if their company is allowed to accept commissions, even if they are an advisor inside of that organization and do not accept commissions themselves, there's been some back and forth as to whether or not they can continue to call themselves CFP and take a fiduciary oath or not. Right now, I think they've taken the stance that, yes, they can still call themselves CS- CFPs, which I believe they should be able to, but then they say, what sort of standards should they be held to? And should somebody actually be able to accept a commission and continue to call themselves a CFP? So I think that that's uh, you know, to be determined in the future. And, and, and uh, currently, yes, a CFP can, is, yes, right? Yes. Because you can hold yourself out as fee-based or fee-only. Fee-only is us, right? So it completely aligns with Walkner Condon. And fee-based is where that's the situation you can accept sales-related compensation. It just has to be disclosed, right? So disclose it to the clients. So if there's a CFP at Merrill Lynch, let's say, that's where where I used to work and John was there too and, and Keith as well in our past life. There's plenty of CFPs at Merrill Lynch. There's probably, do I dare say a thousand? Thousands of CFPs. There's definitely hundreds of CFPs at Merrill Lynch, but there's a lot, right? And and that's in a fee-based type of role. They can accept compensation in a sales-related way, right? But it just has to be disclosed according to the CFP code of conduct. Yeah, and that code of conduct just got overhauled, I think it was what, last year? Yeah, in the last year or so. So it's become a little bit more stringent. uh, And, you know, I, I do think that we'll continue to see this push toward a uniform fiduciary standard at some point. Uh, where commissions might actually go by the wayside for anyone that wants to call themselves a financial advisor versus a uh, like an insurance salesperson or whatever you'd call in that role, whatever you know sort of title they would like to have. I've always been an advocate of title reform. I think that if you, know, you know, no one should be able to call themselves a financial planner unless they're actually a CFP. But you know, there's been uh, prior roles where uh, we were allowed to call ourselves financial planner. When we started the firm, Nate and I talked about this and we just thought that it was a little disingenuous to call ourselves financial planners because we didn't have CFPs. Um, you know, so I, I believe that's really kind of sacred to those people that have put in the time and effort into it, of which I'm not ever going to do. So for full disclosure, no? <laughs> sorry, clients, if you listen to this, not going to happen. Uh, you know, you, you reach a certain age and it's, I don't even know if it's age, but it's like, I don't want to take a test. Like I figure that starting my own firm with Nate, you know, maybe that that counts for something. Oh, so yeah, a little, a little, time. little blood, sweat, and tears. I don't want to take an exam, you know, and I don't really want to leave because I'd be a terrible employee for somebody else. So I don't want to be an employee for somebody else either. <laughs> so if they required me to be a CFP, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. No, it was it was definitely an interesting process. And I'm, I'm glad it's done for sure, but it, it was super helpful. I mean, there were times over the last few years where as I'm studying and immersing myself in the material, you, you can directly relate it to something you're going through with a client that week, let's say. That, that happened several times along the way. Yes, there's a designation around it. And some people, when they're shopping around for an advisor, specifically look for a CFP, which, you know, that's just one way to kind of start weeding out some of the advisors you want to work with. So that that's part of it too. I mean, I think professionally it'll help, right? It'll, it, it's marketable, but it's really about relating what did I learn? How do I apply that to a real life client situation. And that's, that's the biggest thing. It perfectly lines with our firm. Like we were already talking about with the fiduciary standard. So it just made a lot of sense. Yeah. Great. I, I can remember two things in particular, uh, you know, for you stock options. I know that was one thing that 
you had brushed up on and you got more knowledge in the CFP on. And that's not for sure something that we just get regular training on is, you know, restricted stock units and all these different complex stock options. And then uh, the other one, we had one, a conversation just yesterday on charitable remainder trusts. And mm-hmm. I can't remember the other trusts that you mentioned, but there's yeah, and contrasting charitable lead, charitable remainder, just clump it into charitable trust. How's that sound? Charitable trust. So we had a charitable trust conversation yesterday about that. Yeah. And I think that people that are generally higher net worth, you know, people that that's not net worth are probably 2 million and above are, are probably seeking out more of that, you know, CFP or if they really want somebody that uh, is really investment uh, oriented, then they might look for a CFA. And fortunately we can say that we have all of those here at Walkner Con and now, and that's been something that I think we're, we're very proud of. Well, not saying think, I know that we're very proud of, uh, having that. And, and we have people with a lot of designations now and advanced degrees. And so compare and contrast, uh, you know, how much easier or harder was obtaining your MBA versus the CFP? That's a good question. They almost took the equal amount of time, the, but it's different. The time and, and the, yeah, <laughs> they are different. I mean, I, I would actually go back to saying my undergraduate degree was the toughest. Because I studied industrial engineering and just engineering in general, there's you got to take a lot of math, physics, calculus, all those sorts of things. And then the engineering courses themselves sometimes aren't aren't a, a walk in the park. So I still think that was easier than the MBA and the CFP. CFP and MBA are probably on a similar level, but the MBA is nice because you have a structure kind of created for you where there's a lot of self-discipline involved with the CFP. Like you just got to do it. You have to come up with a schedule. You have to commit. You have to get buy-in from your family because especially the last three months, I'll say, just kind of the crunch time before sitting for the board exam, I had to tell Kaylee and and also kind of ask for permission, hey, is it okay that I study basically three hours every single night after the kids go down to bed, you know? And and I would I'd study a little bit at work here and there too between meetings and things like that in that last home stretch. Cause you know, it's like, all right, once I get past this, once I get through this, pass the test, then, then I can start to give time back to my family and it'll, it'll be good. Right. So hardcore 12 weeks study at the, the, the last uh, few months there. And then I can kind of get back to normal life, so to speak. Well, and, <laughs> and we all know you and we know that, that you had arguably overstudied for it. Uh, but that being said, it's debatable, you just don't want to, fail it. You just wanted to get it done first time. And now it's done forever. You will be a CFP for the rest of your life, just like you're an MBA the rest of your life. And I I think what's most impressive about what you did is that you could have stopped at MBA. I mean, you know, somebody looking at your business card going, you know, Mitch is an MBA, good enough. Like, and I would be fine with that too. Uh, We never insisted that you be a CFP, but we certainly aren't going to turn somebody down getting more knowledge uh, in our firm either. And uh, yeah, we appreciate you making the sacrifice, oh, yeah. you know, and the family hours and all of that. But I will say this, that it's definitely made you a better advisor. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And and one thing people ask is, because if, if you're just talking to someone, whether it's uh, a buddy or a former colleague or whatever it is, and they ask about like, well, tell me about the CFP, what is it, you know? And, and I say some of the things that I've already mentioned on this podcast, but then they say, well, how is that different than any of the other tests that you took? You know, the, the FINRA test, so Series 7, Series 66, some of those other things that you have to take to, to get into the industry, right? And it's definitely a deeper dive. It's, it's so much more focused on the planning. And then next they ask, well, now what can you do that you couldn't do before, right? 
And part of it is, well, you're probably going to have some more more uh, tools in the toolbox when it comes to planning. But theoretically, I mean, if I enrolled as an agent, I could file tax returns. Like I could do that theoretically. I don't think I'm going to. <laughs> I don't plan on that. That's not a, a, a big desire for me or or I don't think it's a desire for the firm for me to do that. I would say no. No, no. Although I've always been intrigued by tax. I, I think that somebody in, in our organization at some point will do tax. Uh, for full disclosure, we're in, we're in uh, discussions with somebody that could do tax for us in the future. I, I think that it would uh, be a great service offering, but for you to pivot to tax, I would think that, you know, you just got your life back, Mitch. I don't I think that you want to like destroy your life in tax season. Like, yeah. I hey, Kaylee, if you're anyway. listening, I'm going to go for the CPA now. <laughs> no, you're not. No, that's not me, Kaylee. That's, that's Mitch. Some people like to get designations too. I mean, they got like five after their name. You're like, at some point you just got to say it's Pretty good, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna press pause for a while. I think. Yeah. Yeah. How about how about never? Well, may, I'm maybe 30. series maybe series six uh, twenty four. That'd be okay. Ooh, compliance, compliance. I'm okay. <laughs> I, I will make this promise to everybody in this podcast that in the next twelve months I will have given away a significant amount of my compliance responsibilities, and we're currently working at that. So, um, you've I, never been shy to publicly announce that. That's very true. It's very true. I mean, I, hey, look, I think I'm. I think I've gotten to our firm to a decent point compliance wise, but I got to be done with this thing. I mean, it's just not enjoyable for me. So I don't have that sort of compliance mind, I guess, you know, I do like some legal things and I do study up in some of that, but I, I, I that's more so of like just personal preference and fun. Uh, reading sec regulations is not fun. Not <laughs> at all. Not at all. Yeah. And, and related to the tax things, right. I'm not going to file your tax return, but when it comes to stock options, Clint, you mentioned that earlier. Just knowing the taxation of incentive stock options versus restricted stock units versus, versus well, here in town we have Epic, right? You hear like stock appreciation rights, things like that, non-qualified stock options. All those things are slightly different in their own way, and they're they're viewed differently from the IRS. Therefore, they're taxed differently. So planning is going to be important around those things, right? Those are some of the things that, yeah, I can I can – do a lot better than let's say what I could do three years ago before I went down this whole path of becoming CFP. So just things like that are specific examples. I think that that are pretty good takeaways. Well, yeah, it forces you to study and learn, right? It's, you know, if it's not natural, we tend to as human beings avoid that sort of thing. And, you know, we might use something as a reference guide and then forget about it. But if you have to deal with it and then you get tested on it again and again in your practice exams, in your exams at the end of the chapter, uh, you know, and then in the actual exam at the end, I mean, then it, you're going to commit it to memory. And yeah. so it's nice, at least for, for a few, maybe for a year. <laughs> yeah, and then maybe exactly. it'll dump out of your head, but you'll get yeah. You can re-familiarize yourself with any of those concepts. And I do think that CFP is the most applicable test to our own job. You know, that's, it's definitely great. And it does uh, do a good job of rounding out an advisor's skill set and then working on polishing up some of those weaknesses that we have because, I will tell you this, that we avoid as advisors stuff that we don't know well. So oftentimes that's taxation. Uh, or if we didn't grow up in an insurance related background, like I grew up with MetLife around me and I learned insurance quite well. Uh, but a lot of people that come from a warehouse background like Merrill Lynch, you know, not as much insurance background in, in many cases. And they don't commit a lot of training resources to that. Whereas working for an insurance company, you came from that. They commit an incredible amount of resources to training you on insurance. And uh, 
you know, now I have certain views about certain types of insurance as a result of that. But um, I do think that the training is important for that. And CFP makes you uh, train for that if that isn't natural to you or if you haven't gotten in your own training background. For sure. For sure. And the process covered all of those things, right? And one thing, tangent here, but one thing that was super interesting was testing at a testing center during COVID. I had to wear a mask for like seven straight hours. Ooh, man. <laughs> so you were in a center. I was in a center. How many people? Was it like socially distanced then too? I've got to figure, right? Ish. I didn't have my measuring stick, but I, I f- feel like I was right about at six feet. So I don't know if that was by design, but yeah, it was masked the whole time. You get a 40 minute break in the middle. The way the structure of the test is three hours in the morning and then 40 minute break where you can leave and grab a quick bite to eat or some water or whatever, go back three more hours. So it's about seven hours. So yeah, there's six of those hours you're masked up and testing and I couldn't stop fidgeting with the mask, you know, as I'm trying to, (laughs) as my brain is just clicking, you know, you can kind of hear the gears going up there and yeah, seven straight hours. So I, I feel for you that are in food service and other types of roles where you're sitting in an entire shift nowadays with a mask because that was no joke. Oh, no kidding. I, I, I couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, plus, I like to nervously like chew on a pen or something like that. It would just be awful with doing that inside of a mask as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but, and actually, the reason, the other thing, so I don't remember which podcast podcast it was, but within the last year, I'll say, I came on a podcast and said, I will do my CFP by November because I knew November was a testing window. And that was kind of like my proclamation of, all right, public hold me accountable, make me get it by November. Because you can typically do it in March. There's a a CFP window that you can test July and then November. So notice that it's September, right? COVID actually pushed the July testing window to September. So Clint and I had a conversation maybe two, three months ago, like see if we can get in and cram for this thing and just get it done. Right. And that's what I did. So cram, get it done. And I think it was the first ever September window for the CFP exam. So COVID kind of changed that a little bit this year. It did. Yeah. Now, now as we wrap up this podcast here, last thing, what's your next public public proclamation that you're going to make on the podcast, Mitch? Ooh, as far as like what, what does the public need to hold me accountable to? Yeah. I mean, you did that on your, uh, so you've done that in the past too on your marathon. Yeah. So you did that. Charlie. And you know, what's funny is I actually haven't lived up to that one yet. Because, hold on, because it was going to be this Chicago marathon. I want to do Chicago because Chicago's flat, and I could probably have a better chance of reaching my time goal on a flat course compared to Madison's marathon. And I did, in fact, apply for the Chicago marathon after the podcast, but I didn't get in because it's lotto. So you can't qualify. You can't qualify based on your time or anything like that. You literally just throw your name in the hat. Hopefully they pick you or hopefully not, depending on if you actually want to run or not, (laughs) you know, I mean, you're applying to run for a marathon. How many people actually like apply for something like that? To me, that's somewhat insane, but I, yeah, I respect people that do it. You'd rather throw your name in the the master's lotto. I think I I would definitely rather do that. Yeah. Yeah. There's many other things I'd rather do. Yeah. I mean, I might even do like a, you know, instead of, instead of running a marathon doing like 40 minutes consecutive of burpees. I might even consider doing that instead of, you know, maybe 30 minutes. I don't know. That's a lot of burpees. 40 consecutive minutes. Wow. That's something. Uh, well, so, so how long does it take you to run 26.2 miles? Like six I hours, was right? Three hours and 36 minutes. 
Oh, that's fast. For the Madison one. That's that's quite good. My goal is 3.30, though, so it doesn't feel good because I didn't meet the goal. <sighs> yeah, okay. Overachiever. All right, what do you want to say? What are you, so what are you I'm publicly it? saying that I will do a marathon. I'm going to continue to apply for Chicago, but Chicago's canceled this year because of COVID. So we'll kind of see how events, you know, shape up in the next year or two in COVID world. But so I'll, I'll restate that. And then secondly, I am going to, hmm, what's the time frame? It's going to be golf and handicap related. Yep. But someday in the next two years, I want my index to reach a 20. I think that's very achievable for you. It's 26.5 currently. I'd say you can do that in the next 12 months. And I'm going to publicly say that I want my index to at least touch at one point in my, the next 12 months, a 9.9. That's what I want to be with 9.9. I think, I think I'm starting to put it together. We'll see. And there may or may not be a chance that Clint and I will be on the golf course together very soon, actually. Very soon. So in that regard, got to go. Tea time. Thanks for joining us. This is our attempt at a short, plain English disclosure. Advisory services are offered through Walker Connor Financial Advisors, registered investment advisor regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. All matters that we discuss during the show are for informational purposes only. Look, we weren't attorneys. We aren't tax accountants. Um, if you want to rely on that sort of advice, go to your CPA, go to your estate planning attorney, uh, go to that trusted investment professional. If you're looking at global financial advice, sit down, meet with an advisor, consider your whole financial situation, and then decide whether or not that fits your own situation. We all know that past performance is not indicative of future results. We know that any sort of performance that we talk about, any sort of charts, graphs, anything else that we bring up should not be relied on to be, first of all, uh, reliable because there could be some error in it and then also applicable to your own personal situation. So please take a step back before you listen to something and act on it and consider your own personal situation and meet with a professional where applicable. Uh, review your own investor objectives, risk tolerance, your time horizon, and we all know that all investing involves risk and possible loss of capital. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Give Me Some Truth, and we hope that you can join us on a future episode.